Hi, my name's Karen O'Connor and welcome to this episode of the Menopause, Marriage and Motherhood podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Hey, today I'm talking to Elizabeth Ann Walker, a master neurolinguistic programming practitioner. She's created her own programs and she's had the most incredible journey through life. Come and join me while we find out about her. I want to find out about you because I was really fascinated with your story of what you've done in your life and everything because you started off as a nurse. No, you didn't start off as a nurse. What did you, how did you start off? Yeah, I started off as a nurse. So I, I got a, um, what are they, I don't even know what they're called now. Are they called ATARs, the thing that you get when you leave school? Oh, yeah. So I got an HSC result of 98.99. And um, got into nursing and decided, uh, got into medicine and decided to do nursing. Right. Because I had this great desire of wanting to help people. And I figured that if I was a doctor, I'd probably just be solving problems. But if I was a nurse, I'd be able to help people. And then if I wanted to have babies, which was a big part of my life at that stage, I thought I just wanted to be a mum that a nurse would be a better thing. So I went and did nursing. So did you end up doing midwifery or paediatrics or did you yeah, go somewhere else? I started, I did my bachelor at uni. I was the first of the uni trained nurses. So we did a lot more practical in those days, like in the hospitals. And I finished my degree and went straight into neonatal intensive care because I was passionate about babies. And I thought helping premature babies would be a great idea. What I didn't bank on was the fact that I had zero experience with women, particularly women who were old and mistreated by a system and disgruntled and who loved having fresh meat to take out their anger and frustration on. So I walked into a situation, there was an article written actually the year before I started called Nurses Eat Their Young. And I walked straight into that kind of situation. So I was bullied. I was left alone with a dying baby on my second week. It was really awful. And I was still passionate about it, but I got to burn out within six months. And so I left that and went, you know, I picked something less stressful. I went to cardiothoracic surgery. Uh, (laughs) And I worked... (laughs) with the surgeons from Royal Prince Alfred between Prince Alfred and Strathfield Private in Sydney and stayed with them for a while. And then I went over into cardiac surgery at uh, Vinnie's and was on the transplant team for a little while. And then I had a calling after I had my own, well, just before I had children, actually, I went back and studied midwifery. And then I did midwifery a couple of days a week and cardiac surgery a couple of days a week. And then I had babies. And then I went into midwifery in a big way and managed the biggest birth unit in Sydney and ran the stillbirth program there and came up with the stillbirth pathway, which is like a clinical tool for people to use when a baby dies and how to make that easier for parents and easier for the baby so that everyone gets respected through the process. So prior to creating that tool, about 80% of women went home not knowing why their baby died. Now there's like a 0.1% group of women that go home without a reason. So when did you create that? What what year was that? Because I can't even imagine not knowing why your baby died. That was about 2015. 
2015, that must have been, 2015-16. So, yeah, people, um, people get told all sorts of reasons, but having a good clinical reason and really knowing the truth is really important in terms of future pregnancy planning and stuff like that. So, and for closure as well. Yeah, yeah, knowing that it wasn't something they did because it very rarely is. I'm a bit lost on the timeline here. So that was 2015, but you worked on Hamilton Island and then worked for Cirque du Soleil as well. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that bit. That was in the middle. (laughs) I've had a colourful life. Um, So, yeah, I worked at Lindemann Island in 2006, no, 2007-2008. And you had your kids by then, did you? Yeah, so my kids were 2000 and 2003 and then 2007 we went to Lindemann Island in the Sundays, and I was the nurse there for two years and then I did fly in, fly out until it shut down in 2009, I think it was, that it shut down. So that was a really good experience because that was a full practitioner role where I was the practitioner on the island. And so that was managing a community of 900 people at any one time and was quite an exciting space. And there I learnt to do flying trapeze. And from there <laughs> and from there, I had an opportunity to fly on the trapeze with Cirque du Soleil, which was pretty cool. Um, how did you come? How, how did that happen? <laughs> here's the biggest thing I think I can give people as advice relationships are everything and opportunities are created through relationship and so obviously we had a trapeze school at the island I then went from there to working at a trapeze school on the weekends so I did my normal nursing job through the week and then on the weekend I would go out to Homebush and work at Circus Arts Australia and teach people how to do flying trapeze And through that came an opportunity to go to some of the rehearsals at Cirque du Soleil. And through that came an opportunity, like I just was really nice to everybody. And through that came an opportunity to, hey, do you want to have a go in our tent? And through that came a, hey, we've got this replacement spot. Do you want to do that too? And it's like, great. So it was only once that I was in an actual show and it was once in another circus in their tent as well. But it's a claim to fame that I keep. When you were doing fly in, fly out, were the kids living on the island with you or were they somewhere else? No, when I did FIFO, the kids would be with me one week in Sydney and then with their dad for a week. And so on the week that I didn't have them or over the holidays, for the half of the holidays I didn't have them, I was up on the island. And we had casual nurses that did the fill-in by Club Med, but we had other nurses that were employed through agencies. Let's talk about... What happened? Because you don't do nursing anymore, do you? No. No. Why did you leave nursing? Yeah, so I had a series of health issues. So while I was on Lindemann Island the first time, my marriage dissolved while I was there beyond repair. And in the end, I ended up being rescued by the police in a helicopter with my children and taken away from domestic violence, basically. I then did all the shelf help I could. I read every book and did everything known to man to get back to who Elizabeth Ann Walker was or it was Elizabeth Ann Gordon in those days. And I seemed to be okay. Uh, I'd had a couple of operations before I went to the island that had been problematic and then that turned into a series of disasters later. So 
I stopped nursing because I could no longer physically do the work. Complications. You don't, you don't have to tell me the details, but what kind of what kind of operations were they? Yeah, so initially in 2005, I had an operation because I had really bad stress incontinence after having the kids. So I'd had Jack in 2000 and Cameron in 2003 and then ended up with horrible stress incontinence. And I went and did all the pelvic floor exercises and went to pelvic floor units and nothing seemed to be working. So I went to my doctor and he suggested that we try a new procedure, which I was quite familiar with being in the industry. Uh, And he thought that a TVT or a transvaginal tape would be a good thing uh, and a good way to fix my problem. And it was a guy that I'd known for a long time. He was, you know, one of the obstetricians that I worked with. And so I trusted him and it, I'd seen it done before because I worked in the operating theatres and when I wasn't doing hearts, the obvious place to put me was in the gynae theatres. So I'd seen it done. I knew it was quick and easy. And I said, yeah, okay, great, let's do it because I'm sick of wetting my pants. And given that I did things like flying trapeze and trampolining as sports, wetting my pants was actually really a problem for me. I couldn't do the things that I wanted to do because I kept wetting my pants. So it seemed like a quick fix. And I thought, yep, well, I've tried everything else, so let's do it. And that surgery should have taken about 40 minutes. I woke up nine hours. Well, I actually woke up on the table. Um, So I woke up on the operating table and heard, she's bleeding, she's bleeding, quick, quick. And I remember thinking, what? And then the mask went back over my face and I woke up nine hours later. And what had happened was there was on the end of the, each end of the tape, there's a large needle or a trocar. So it's about the size, the thickness of a pen with a big spike on the end. And um, the surgeon had slipped during the procedure. And what they found out after they opened me up and looked at everything was that he'd actually uh, torn my bladder and perforated my femoral artery and damaged my femoral nerve. So I woke up with a catheter in and that catheter had to stay in for six months And when the catheter came out, I was even more incontinent than when I'd gone in for the surgery. So the tape itself hadn't worked, but the tape remained inside my body with no result. So obviously not thinking that it was any problem other than the surgeon just slipping, I went and sought out other surgeons. So that surgeon felt really guilty because obviously he was a friend of mine. He didn't, you know, he didn't know what to say to me. And he referred me to someone who was very, very good in the field at the time. Uh, who worked out of the sand in Sydney. And he, after over time, he gave me a lot of time to heal and recover. He said, look, I think we should do what's called a TVTO. So it's a transvaginal tape, but it goes in through the obturator of the bone underneath your pelvis rather than from the top. Uh, And that way we'll be able to stay away from any organs and we won't have any slippage and it'll all be okay. And so again, I said, yes, because I was like, anything is better than this constant, you know, wetness and having to wear nappies when I'm only, you know, in my 30s. So I went in and had the operation and this time I woke up uh, unable to pee and I couldn't move either of my legs. And there were large blood clots had formed around my femoral nerves on both legs and so I couldn't move my legs for five days, which was really scary because I thought that I was paralysed and they weren't sure what was going on. But eventually they found out that these big blood clots were around the nerves of my legs. But overall, once that settled down and I was able to walk, which took about 12 days, then what happened 
was I had continents back. So I was stoked. I was like, yes, I, I can wear undies again and I, I feel like a woman again and I'm okay. And that went along fine and then um, everything was good. The divorce happened, the leaving the island happened, everything happened. And I was back from the island and I went fishing with my dad. And as we were driving back, the boat trailer had a fault on it and a weld snapped and so the boat slipped and we stopped the car and as we went to lift the boat I felt the tape inside just tear and a whole lot of tissue inside me tear and I leaked everywhere and I was so embarrassed because I was in front of my dad and anyway I went to the hospital and what they found was a big tumour and there was a tumour between the two tapes and it was the size of a tennis ball and again I was incontinent and this tumour was there and I thought I was going to die and I didn't know what was going to happen and life at that point was pretty awful because I was 37 by then and I was like, oh, my God, like I'm just going to be like an old lady now because they've done all the operations and now I've got this tumour and, you know, like, do I have to be like those ladies that I'd looked after in the nursing home when I trained to be a nurse? Like, am I going to smell like them? Am I, you know, how is my boyfriend going to even want to be with me? Like what, what is going to happen? And I was just really scared. So that fear went away a little bit when I found out that it wasn't cancerous and it was just, this is just a mass and we don't even have to move it. It can just stay there and it's fine. And I was like, okay, so at least that's okay. And then I just made a decision. I was just like, well, I'm not doing anything. So I'm a bit incontinent. Like it was kind of back to a, just a bit worse than what it was after I'd had the kids. And I was like, well, I can manage this with a pad. I'll, I'll be okay. Then in 2012, uh, I started bleeding a lot again. I started getting really bad period pain. The place where the tumour had been started hurting and I started to get worse and worse in terms of incontinence. And so I went back to, well, I, I attempted to make an appointment with the doctor that had fixed everything and he had had a stroke and was no longer operating. So I then went through meltdown for a little while of, oh, my God, now I'm going to have to find someone new again and what, like, what do I do? What if they stuff it up again? So I found a surgeon at St Vincent's and um, he decided that I needed a hysterectomy and that a good idea would be to put another tape in. Now, you think I would have learned by then that tapes were not great for my body, but he assured me that, you know, the other surgeons maybe hadn't had a lot of experience and he had a lot of experience and, you know, told me that it would be great to have another tape in. So I agreed to the hysterectomy and that was because of precancerous changes and at the same time they took the tumour out that was there and that was all full of adenomyosis and stuff like that. So it was a good thing that they removed that. Then they put the third tape in. And I woke up from that operation unable to pee and I couldn't pee for nearly a month. So I had to have a what's called a suprapubic catheter in, which is a catheter that goes in through your tummy into your bladder. And it has like a little tap on it. And I had to use that for about a month until I taught myself how to wee again. And so I eventually did teach myself how to wee, but the incontinence came back just the same. So now I was back in nappies again. So that was 2012. 
And by then I was like, I'm not ever having another operation again. Like, this is just stupid. This, like, I just am going to have to live with it and it's all I can do. And if I smell, I smell. And, you know, I just won't go anywhere where I might get sweaty or I might have to jump or dance or I'll, I'll just do normal things and not do any of that stuff. And I'll stop exercising forever because, like, obviously I can't because even if I exercise, the nappy will fill up fast and I don't want to be like that. And so I changed my life. I put on about 25 kilos because I stopped exercising. I, you know, pretty much hated life because it was pretty boring. Then what happened is um, the nerve damage from earlier 2005 came back. And I ended up in a wheelchair, unable to walk. I couldn't move. And no one really knew what was going on. And then I started walking again and it was okay. And then I um, started bleeding and I was like, well, hang on, how am I bleeding out of my vagina if I don't have a uterus anymore? Like this just doesn't make sense to me, so I must have cancer. I'm, you know, I'm a nurse, I know these things. The only thing else that could be bleeding is a tumour out there that is bleeding. So I'd convinced myself I was going to die and that I had cancer and I didn't go to the doctor for four weeks with the bleeding because I was too scared to go. Even though I had all the knowledge and knew that I was being stupid by waiting, I still waited. And I went to the doctor and she had a look and she said, this blood's not coming from where your uterus was and there's nothing in your vagina, but what's there is on the roof of your vagina. It looks like there's a hole. I said, what do you mean? And she said, I, I need to look at this under anesthetic because I can't quite get the speculum to go in the right place. So I need a scope to look at this. So she referred me to a urogynecologist and what had happened was the three tapes that were there had sheared through in between my urethra and my vagina and created a fistula or a hole. So there was a direct hole between my vagina and my wee hole. And um, I was constantly getting urine infections to the point of needing to be admitted and have antibiotics. And I was really sick that year. That was 2000, end of 2014. And thank God I'd met Simon by then because he was a godsend. He just looked after me and made everything okay. But when they found this out, well, then they had to fix the hole because otherwise I was going to keep getting infections and eventually the antibiotics wouldn't work. So uh, I went in in 2015 for the operation and they did what's called a urethroplasty. So they basically cut all the way up along my wee hole to my bladder and lay it all open, cleaned out all, there was all stones and little tumours the whole way along it from the trauma. They cleaned all that out. Then they got all the pieces of tape because all three pieces were in there and there were stones and tumours all along the tape as well. They had to cut right out towards my hip bones to retrieve some of those tapes. And they did basically what's called a pelvic dissection and, you know, pulled out a whole lot of stuff, including moving muscles from my tummy to try and repair my pelvic floor, which later went rotten and were destroyed. And I then woke up from that completely incontinent, so unable to control my bladder at all and destined to wear nappies for the rest of my life. So I had a catheter in for six months again and while it repaired and then when they tested it it all looked okay and so they removed the catheter and then i i didn't have any control left at all because of all the damage from all the surgeries 
And since then, that's pretty much been my life. But what was worse than any of that was with all the trauma, all the antibiotics, by the end of 2015, I ended up with chronic pain. So I was on 12 different pain medications, including medications for your brain to stop your brain feeling pain. So I basically slept all day. I ended up with a autoimmune disorder called erosive lichen planus vulvaris, which is where the skin on your vagina and urethra eats itself. And so it creates big ulcerations, ulcerations that are bad enough to create a hole through your labia. Um, and I pretty much wanted to die again. And I just was like, what, what is this? Like, I've done the work now. Like I'd done all the personal development. I'd been to Tony Robbins. I'd done NLP. I had done the work. And I'm like, why, like, why me? You know, I'd got to that place again of why me? I'm just, I don't want to live with this pain. I don't want to do anything. So then I did more NLP. I thought there's got to be an answer somewhere in the brain body connection. So I went back and studied NLP, um, which is neuro-linguistic programming. So that was in you know, the end of, so that must have been early 2000, 2016. And I started to learn that I didn't need painkillers, that my brain was capable of slowing down the message, of understanding that the message was no longer critical because our body sends pain signals to tell us something's critical, fix it now. And my pathway for that had just got really good because it had been in pain for so long. So all I needed to do was just slow that pathway down, which I could do with my mind. As the pain got less and less, then the lichen planus started to clear up. It's not gone. So I have to use steroids for that, which is not great, but I'd rather use steroids than, not, than have those ulcers because uh, it gets in your mouth and in the sockets of your eyes as well. So it's very uncomfortable. So I started just doing more and more work into the mind-body connection and then I looked at the spiritual body connection as well and started working out, you know, how have I created this? And some people who are listening might be thinking, well, what do you mean? You didn't create it. It got created for you from a whole lot of botched stuff. Yet I'm a firm believer now that we create these things for various purposes in our lives. Uh, some things are taught, sent to us to slow us down. Some things are to teach us more about our body and our mind connection and the ability that we have. So I went on from then in 2016 to become a trainer in NLP because it was such valuable work and it helped me so much. I now have an outbreak of lichen planus roughly once a year, which is very unusual for that kind of autoimmune disease. Normally people have it all the time. I have no pain whatsoever anymore. And in the last few months, my continence has started to get better. Not a lot better. I still have to wear big pads, but I'm not wearing nappies anymore. And if I'm at home, I can sometimes wear undies for a couple of hours without a pad, which is really quite freeing. And for, I know if anyone's listening that's got incontinence, the feeling of cotton undies on your skin is so much nicer than a pad on your skin. Not to mention the stuff that it does to your sex life and your relationship with your partner if you've got one. So I'm now in a position where I can help others. I was invited to be part of the class action related to the meshes and I am part of that because they are still putting mesh in people. 
And this for me started in 2005. And since 2005, companies like Ethicon have known that mesh is not okay. And yet they're still allowing people to have that kind of procedure after everything that people like me and many, many others, like hundreds of thousands of others have been through. So I'm an advocate for change in that area. And I'm also an advocate for not being a victim. Didn't happen to you. It happened in some reason for you. The key is to find out what the reason is. For me, it was about getting into NLP and becoming the largest female trainer of NLP in Australia to bring that feminine touch to a system of working with the mind and the language that controls the mind into a space that was accessible for women and for men who were not in sales or in rah-rah kind of jobs. And so for me, it's held great purpose and I can now say that I'm super grateful for it. But for a long time, it was the worst thing that had ever happened to me. So a couple of things, and I need to ask both the questions so that I don't forget. (laughs) So... The first one is you were saying that you did Tony Robbins and everything and if you could talk me through that, if you could talk us through that, that would be great. And the second one is to do with the NLP. Men and women, you know, because my background's in construction, so I know for a fact how differently men and women think. How is that difference, how has it shown up in the NLP? Like when you took NLP, was it a very masculine thing and how did yeah. you change it to become a feminine thing? Because I agree with you, it's most personal development things are written by blokes and they appeal to people whose minds think in that very logical, straight way and not necessarily to women. And it's not that, but you see, I'm convinced I think in straight lines and every bloke on the earth is going around the trees to get where they want to go. And they think the same thing about us. It's just yeah. a different thought process. <laughs> so, okay, over to you. Okay. So the Tony Robbins thing, I'm in the wheelchair. I can't walk. I'm a friend offers me a ticket at a cheap price. And I said, okay, fine. I'll give it a go. I didn't really want to go. I kind of went thinking this is going to be stupid. It's four days in a cold room. I like the guy, but I don't like him that much. I I like him a lot now, by the way. (laughs) Since I've met him and spent some time with him, he's a great guy. But I sat in the room and when it came to the fire walk, I kind of got pushed up to the fire lane and I stood up and walked and I hadn't walked in six months. And I don't know how that happened. And well, I do. I know that It was a message from my brain to my body and that I'd given myself permission to use that message. And I didn't ever not walk again. So I've kept walking since then. And I, and the reason that that led to NLP is I was like, well, what magic was that? I was just going to say to you, what is that message that you're talking about there? Yeah. So the, the physical message of, well, see, this is where, my NLP is different. Was it a physical message? Was it a language message? Was it a spiritual message? They were the questions for me. And I looked at the experience and thought, okay, I sat on the most uncomfortable chair in the most freezing cold room with people I didn't know because I didn't go with anybody. So I met people there. And somehow, once those feelings of excitement and control and power and energy were so overwhelming, suddenly I could do anything again. And I realised that, uh, probably a lot later, I realised 
that I'd allowed myself to become a victim to everything that had happened. I'd allowed myself to let all of those surgeries and traumas make me something that I wasn't. And the communication with my brain, body and spirit allowed me to return to who I really was. And I'd heard of NLP. I just didn't think much of it. I thought it was for salesmen. And I thought if I could harness the energy that I've got there in a much more peaceful way, in a way that still has the determination and the strength and the power but doesn't need the, yeah, clap your hands, woo, we're going, let's like, you know, I did not want to run a training that was all of that. Now, don't get me wrong, if you come to one of my trainings, there is a little bit of that in it because we love dancing, but it doesn't need to all be that. It's much more effective if you utilise NLP as a language that can communicate across the body, across the mind and across the spirit. And when you create communication between all three, your body will remember that you have a blueprint for perfect health. Because when you're born, you're born with a blueprint for perfect health. And it's stored in your unconscious mind. And when you can access that, and when your higher self can access that, then you can restore your body. How does this show up in other areas? Well, we've had clients that have recovered from stage four cancer. We've had clients who have you know, had 10 years of infertility come and done work with us and then become pregnant. This has been proven over and over and over again. And if you look at the work of people like Bruce Lipton and Joe Dispenza, it's the same thing. So when you combine linguistics with spirituality and the, the things that we have in our body already, so, for example, if you do some biodynamic breath work, you can release a lot of trauma. If you combine that with language where you can mentally release that trauma and then in spirituality where you can, if you want to call it orically, I'm probably getting a bit woo-woo now for people, but you can orically release that trauma, then you no longer need the trauma. And when I say need, some people need the trauma. It gives them significance. It gives them power. It gives them a story and they don't have an identity outside of that story. And so they're scared to let go of the trauma because it means like they don't know who they are then. So I guess there was a lot of bravery involved as well in being okay to let go of the story that I'd been in an abusive relationship, that all this bad stuff had happened to me, that you don't know what it's like to be me. I'm a single mum and I've got all this stuff wrong. Like when I was brave enough to let go of that story, I then get, got to tell the story of, you know, I created a seven-figure business in less than 12 months and I have impacted hundreds and thousands of people. You know, I got, I've now got opportunities to speak on the same stages as Tony Robbins and that kind of stuff touches a lot more lives than me sitting in my story going, poor me. And most people have a mission on their heart and most people shy away from it because they have to be brave and they don't know how. So my job is to help them. That's a, a really good point. How I heard it as you were talking then was we all need to have a life full of meaning. And for most of us, that meaning might be I'm a mum, and I'm talking about myself here. I'm a mum struggling to keep up with things. I've got four kids. I'm really busy. I can't do anything, blah, blah, blah. And what you're saying is you, you chose, and through NLP, you get people to choose to remove the stuff that keeps you in place and replace it with something 
that gives you the opportunity to expand and enjoy life, maybe. Yeah. I mean, that's just a forward, forward momentum. Yeah, forward momentum with meaning. Right, okay. That sums it up nicely. Well, yeah, because <laughs> most people get stuck. We just all pile all this meaning onto ourselves. Yeah. I am this, I am that. I've had pelvic mesh, and I'm talking about myself here, not you. I've had pelvic mesh, so I can't do this, I can't yeah. go there, and that's all the meaning. So it's stripping away all that meaning. Is, yeah. is that a, a way of looking at it? Yeah, so you, you strip away the meaning, but rather than leaving someone empty, you allow them to choose what meanings to create. You allow them to choose what their life looks like. You allow them to choose to be free from things like anxiety, depression, frustration, because all those things are a choice. You're just they like, are a choice. <laughs> yeah. And also the familiar is way more attractive than the unfamiliar to most people. So to give up I am a cancer sufferer yeah. is quite difficult because it's an identity that's yes. got your life to where it is right now and for most humans we'd rather stay in our familiar comfort zone than go and do something else so it does take a lot of courage to do this yeah so I liken it to a pair of granny undies when you when you buy a pair of granny undies they're really tight and they kind of dig in around your legs and a little bit across your tummy but after a few months they kind of get saggy and baggy and it feels okay again. And it's just like your old undies and you start going, oh, it's just like my old undies. And then a few months later they get really soggy and baggy and you start thinking, oh, I've put on weight, but really just the undies aren't holding your tummy in anymore. And so you have to go buy a, a new pair of granny undies and when you buy them they're tight again and it's not comfortable again. And so I think one thing that helps people move from their comfort zone into what could become their new comfort zone is the concept that the band will always expand. It always will. You just have to have, be brave enough to step into it while it's a bit contracted and feel the tight undies and be a bit uncomfortable, knowing that eventually you'll feel comfortable there too. Because we've changed our whole lives. Like, you know, it was great when you could lie on your back and cry and someone would shove a boob in your face and you'd get fed. You know, it was great when you could crawl and someone would pick you up and put you in a high chair and feed you. And it was great when you could walk and do it yourself. And then it wasn't so great when you had to buy the food yourself and you had to worry about whether you had enough money to buy it yourself. But then it got okay again when you realized that you were great at budgeting and cooking mincemeat with frozen peas, you know, and then eventually you got to eat out at fancy restaurants. Like it's all different comfort zones and they've all become comfortable for you at one point. And by saying that I'm comfortable by being sick, I'm comfortable not living my best life is one of the biggest tragedies that are, is happening in society and it's a big one. You know, people expect people to have anxiety and depression. Like, how is it okay? And, you know, there's those movements like it's okay to not be okay. Well, no, it's not okay to not be okay. You were put here to enjoy life and to be happy. I get a lot of people say, what's the purpose of life? You know, what's my life's purpose? What, you know, what's my mission? How do I identify that? And say, so the purpose of life is to be happy. It's that simple. You're not being happy. You're not following your purpose. So work out what makes you happy and do that. 
going back to that question about the difference between men and women in NLP, just explain how you, because I've done Tony Robbins. Yeah. So, and I did not like the rah rabbit. Loved yep. the dancing, could dance all day. Didn't like the old, okay, let's go. Here we go. Yep. I was just like, oh my God, excuse me, I'm going to vomit. How is it different? And I have to say, it did put me off the whole NLP thing because I was just, yeah, like, oh, yeah. of well, course. It's like listening to, oh, I don't know, there's just a style of things. Dave Ramsey talking about money. I can read his books and his books are great, but if I listen to him, I can last about <laughs> two minutes. And yeah. then I just want to turn it off because it's just too, I don't want to say upbeat because that sounds really terrible, but it's too over the top, you know? Yeah, and the thing is is that it doesn't recognise that there's two types of people in the world, introverts and extroverts. That's a good point. (laughs) Introvert. (laughs) (laughs) And then there's extroverted introverts and introverted extroverts. And when, like, uh, the best example I can probably give is I once saw Tony Robbins and Richard Branson on stage together. Now, Richard Branson presents in the feminine. He's a very manly man. He's a very useful man. He's an extremely talented man, but he presents in a very, he's a very much an introvert and he presents in the feminine. He waits for questions. He delivers the answers to the questions. He gives opinion in a way that's non-offensive. And when you pair him up next to Tony, it's quite funny because they're both extremely successful men. And they both have extremely successful businesses in transforming people, believe it or not. Even though Richard's more into business than transforming people, he still transforms people. So what we do in our NLP that's different is we communicate with each individual where they're at. So even though you might be in a room of 50 people, our team knows exactly who you are. And we move and change throughout the training so that every representational system is satisfied so that introverts and extroverts get what they need whatever personality classification system you use we know it we use it and then we accept that no one fits in a box and that no one should be in a box and we we adapt so i don't do the teaching where I stand at the front and go dun, 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 like in the classroom at school because I think school is one of the worst constructs that's available to people. It keeps people in a box. It stops them expanding. And so in my training room, there's a lot of questions. There's a lot of rabbit holes that we go down and yet the training all still gets delivered. So they still get all the content and it's just done more conversationally rather than dictatorially is that a word (laughs) i know what you mean so it's it's kind of more like i just make up words (laughs) (laughs) totally so it's kind of more like the the style of podcast that i do i don't want to interview people i want to have a conversation with people and i want the people listening to experience the whole thing as a conversation and and it's one of those things i get asked onto a lot of podcasts And when someone sends me through pre-questions, I write back to them and say, thanks, I'm not going to read those. And they go, oh, but I'm going to ask those. I'm like, that's cool. You can ask them. I'm not going to read them. And I'm not going to send you pre-prepared answers because the authenticity that comes across when you go down a rabbit hole or where it takes a different turn. You know, I did a podcast yesterday that was 
all about money and you know how how do women make money and how do we break free of constraints to make money and it ended up being a podcast on relationships and when there's the freedom for it to flow like that you always get a better opportunity you know it serves the audience and it serves the people that are going to listen to this so yeah so that's exactly what happens i I have never done the same training twice the content's the same in terms of what they walk out, out knowing you know the tools that they have to help other people and stuff like that but what i talk about what i deliver the way the room feels that's all different every single time I do want to go down the path of if somebody hasn't done any, because I've done lots of personal development, the same as you, and I've done lots and lots of different style of personal development, and I tend to find that it focuses on one area or another for the most part. This is a generalisation. Some things cover specific topics, but your in what you do in one of your courses, is it topic specific do you do like relationships or money or health or no it's just like whatever comes up open slather <laughs> it's like we'll it's what li- and it's life as is relevant for the people in the room so the purpose of nlp like obviously we give out a qualification in coaching we give out a qualification in timeline therapy in neurolinguistic programming and in hypnosis So those qualifications happen and the board requirements for those qualifications happen. But it's woven through this beautiful, rich tapestry of life and the way that the people in the room are currently experiencing life and the way that they would want to experience life. So it's completely relevant for every individual in the room. We have people that get really angry in the room because they get triggered by stuff. We have people who, you know, like by day three, most people have had a bit of a cry. Uh, because they've realized that, wow, what they've created is not really what they want and they didn't realize how easy it was to actually create something different. Society is full of rules and so a lot of the time we spend breaking down the concept of what a rule is because most of the rules are there for protection but people see them as boundaries and barriers instead. And the biggest way I can illustrate that is, you know, during COVID-19, there's been a rule that we don't run events. I just wrote a letter to the Premier and told her about my events and what they do and she said, okay, you can keep running. Now, I did the right thing. I asked for permission. I got the authority from her and the Health Minister. You know, we obviously, we set up our trainings appropriately. But for most people, they just went, oh, there's a rule. Okay, I'll follow it. And people have missed out on growth through this time because of it. People have missed out on other things because of it. You know, I had a client this morning who's a new client of mine that rang up scared that she might have COVID because she went to Melbourne recently and she's in country Victoria. And she said, I'm just having a meltdown. Like if I've got it and I've given it to someone, how bad will I feel? And I said, what are you focusing on right now? She's like, well, I said, she goes, well, I'm focusing on COVID. And I went, great. When did you decide that you wanted to have that? For what purpose do you need that right now? And she said, oh, you're a hard ass, aren't you? And I went, yeah. I said, why, why do you need COVID right now? What do you need it for? And I then had to go because I had a client and I came back to a message that said, I'll read it to you because it was quite insightful and she's done really, really well to get to this point of realisation. She wrote, okay, by being sick, I create that no one wants me. And given that I've lived a life where no one wants me, 
it's easier to accept that than the one that I'm currently creating with you where lots of people seem to want me. And I said, so which way do you want to go? Do you want to keep doing that or do you want to go the way that we've been going? And she's like, no, no, I'm all in. We're going that way. So that's a standard example of a comfort zone. She's used to no one wanting her, so it's easier to keep creating no one wanting her. And mentally she can't do it anymore, so today she decided to do it physically and get a sore throat. Our unconscious mind is clever. It'll deliver whatever we ask it to. How do you help people figure out what it is they actually want to do? Because most of us don't know. We haven't got a clue. Yeah, I think the questions are always the answer. If you ask enough questions, you'll get to the answer. People stop questioning themselves because they have rules and they have limitations. So if I was to say to someone, what do you want to do? And the first answer that came into their head was I want to dance around and wear my bikini all day. They would also at the same time think, well, that's stupid. I can't do that. You know, I've got a job to go to or I've got kids. The, the question is, why can't you do that? There's plenty of people that make money by dancing around and wearing their bikini all day. But it doesn't seem like something they can do, right? So it's about asking the right questions and then exploring the limiting beliefs that are holding those feelings in place. So what is it? Is it that you're too fat to wear your bikini in your mind? Or is it that you actually don't really want to wear a bikini? You just said that because body image is an issue for you. The purpose of life is to be happy. So when was the last time you were happy? What were you doing the last time you were happy? Do more of that. And people go, yeah, but that was traveling. I need money to travel. Well, great. How can you get money and travel? We live in this duality of this or that. And it never has to be like that. It can always be this and that. And we always ask the question, why? And a much better question is, what's great about this? If something bad happens, we go, oh, why did that happen? Well, what if we just turned around and looked at it and went, well, what's great about this? And created a different perspective. So how do I help them find out what they really want? I ask a lot of questions, specifically directed questions to the unconscious mind. How do you learn those questions? Come and do my course. <laughs> I was just going to say to you, I was just looking at my watch then and going, four minutes. Right. <laughs> so what is it you offer and where can people find out about you? And I will put this on the webpage so people can go and find out and everything. Yeah. But talk to me about what you actually do. What's yeah, the best sure. way of starting? So we offer training and coaching in NLP, timeline therapy, hypnosis and well, pretty much anything people want to learn. So we do a lot of spiritual work as well. We don't advertise that on our website because that's stuff that we get people to learn when they come in. So most people come in through NLP. We then also offer a retreat portfolio. So we have retreats that start at $997 and they go all the way up to $7,500. And they, some are women's retreats, some are combined retreats, some are very secretive retreats. So there's two that are by application only. And it's a retreat that you get very little detail on. So you don't get a program of what's happening. You just turn up and it's kept like that for a reason. <laughs> um, so how do people contact us? www.elizabethannwalker.com. Facebook, Elizabeth Ann Walker. I'm happy to accept friend requests as long as someone sends me a message. If you send me a friend request without a message, it might be three or four months before I get to it. And the other way is through our business page, which is Elizabeth Ann Walker Training and Coaching. And let me just go back to this you've done all this in or in terms of your business in like less than a year and a half haven't you yeah 
And so you must be pretty damn good at creating programs. Like you must have just taken to all this like a duck to water. I had a reason. I had a strong why. I wanted to do it and I I wanted pe- at, at the in the beginning it was I didn't want people to suffer. Now that has changed because I realized that that was a major away from value and obviously over time I've changed that to a towards value. I actually see a different world. And a lot of people keep, call me a dream keeper or a vision keeper and the reason they call me that is because I can see so much more in people than what they can see in themselves and I'm happy to hold that vision for them until they're strong enough to hold it. That is a perfect note to end on. That was so cool. <laughs> so much fun. Awesome. That was great, Karen. <laughs> I really like how you just let it all just happen. Oh, thank you. That was so cool. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Menopause, Marriage and Motherhood podcast. Come and join us in our new Facebook group, the Menopause, Marriage and Motherhood group, where we'll discuss what happened in this podcast and all the other things that have got to do with midlife. I'll see you there.